Bibles, John chapter 10 is where we're heading, the Good Shepherd, verses 11 uh, through 18. We are continuing just kind of a bit of an emphasis through this biblical justice series on racial harmony or racial reconciliation. And so John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18 is what we're focusing in on. There's a broader sermon that Jesus is speaking uh, at this point, but we're looking specifically at verses 11 through 18. Jesus states this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired hand, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus again states, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's a stunning statement. <laughs> and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice, so there will be, notice, one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. To simply state it, the gospel, or a gospel, without offense is no gospel at all. A gospel without offense is no gospel at all. The good news of Jesus Christ, uh, the good news, if it only calms and comforts but never corrects or offends us is no gospel at all. It's actually not good. It's not good news if it doesn't in some sense offend us. Even growing up, uh, I hated when my parents would offend me, right? In some sense, they would bring correction to me. They would call out, you're wrong, Dan. You need to do this different. They would offend my sense of pride. They would offend my wants and my desires. I can look back on that now and say, that offense was good. That offense was healthy. It shaped me to who I am today. I needed that offense. And therefore, in a similar way, a gospel without offense is no gospel at all doesn't mean that we should be offensive for offensive sake. But a gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he came to do for us, both in his person and in his work, if it carries with it no offense, it is no gospel at all. Now, in this particular text, John chapter 10, you, 
you have just stepped into the thick of it all, right? There has been a climactic movement of of offense going on. It is thick tension. People's, you know, they're, they're ready to go at it at this point with Jesus. In fact, we could read in the previous chapters that they, the crowd there that now stands before Jesus, is ready to kill him. Jesus has told a group of Jews and Pharisees that they are children of Satan in chapter 8, verse 44. That's going to cause some tension, right? He's also then stated that he himself, Jesus, is Yahweh God in chapter 8, verse 58, stating, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus literally saying, I am Yahweh, I'm the creator of this world, this planet, which was blasphemy according to the Jewish leader's of the day. In chapter 9, he's breaking religious tradition. He's just healed a blind man on the Sabbath, right? And if, 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 if that's not enough, then that he's breaking this rabbinic law before the Pharisees, Jesus actually turns around to those very leaders and states, actually, you're the blind ones. You're spiritually blind and you're living in sin. These were the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is offending them left and right. Their response to Jesus, they've called him a Samaritan. It'd be comparable to utilizing the N-word in our day. They've called him a Samaritan. They've accused him of having a demon. And now they are ready to kill Jesus And so what does Jesus do in this moment of incredible offense and tension? He decides to preach a sermon. Strange, right? Like that you would just stop everything, hey, knowing the tension that is around, and actually step into the pulpit to preach a sermon. What he does in chapter 10 is he builds on a metaphor of shepherding, which would have been understood in that particular day. Um, And it was also then used in the Old Testament to point out some of the failings of the religious leaders in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is working on something that he's working with a metaphor that already carries some kind of religious baggage to it. And he begins his, his sermon here utilizing this metaphor, declaring his divinity. He's declaring his godness. And what he will declare is he'll say, I am the door. I am the door in verse 19. He's saying, I am the only way in to the people of God. I am the only way in to the flock of God. You want to be a part of God's people? I am the only way. He's being offensive once again. He's saying, I I am the exclusive pathway. I'm the exclusive doorway. You can't get in by any other means but through me. But then Jesus goes on in verse 11 and 18 to develop this metaphor again. Again, He's just kind of turning the metaphor, utilizing in different ways in order to bring some, some light to the people at hand. He develops this metaphor, but then has the audacity in front of this offended crowd to declare his goodness. He has offended them left and right. And now he's saying, by the way, I'm good. I'm good. 
I'm good. So the question that I want to cover this morning, what's so good about the good shepherd? Perhaps what's so offensively good about the good shepherd? First is this, in verses 11 through 13, we see this, that as God, Jesus lays down his life to save us. And you may say, okay, well, yeah, we, we, we know the basics of the gospel. We'll just hear him out for a second. It's stunning what he says. Jesus declares in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The I am takes us back to chapter 8, where Jesus declared before Abraham was, I am. Right? Jesus is picking up on some of the things that he has already said, declaring, in fact, that part of his goodness is in the reality that he himself is God. He is Yahweh God, the one who is, as we've learned before, he is self-existent, he is self-sufficient, he is the one who's created all things, he depends upon nothing, but he's created all things to depend upon him. All life breath is found in him. This is a part of his Goodness. This is who Jesus is declaring that he is. He is God, and therein he is good. Right? Now, for the folks who are standing there, it's the same application for us today that when you hear Christ's statements, specifically these kind of statements where Jesus is declaring himself to be God, the good shepherd, you either have to take him at his word, or you have to come to the fact that he's an utter lunatic. He's Lord or he's lunatic, as C.S. Lewis um, pointed out, right? You can't ride the fence with Jesus. He's either Lord or he's crazy. And this is actually the result of this particular sermon, that even down in verse 19, the people are divided over who Jesus is, saying this guy is insane, while others saying, wait a second, we need to consider this because he's doing things, accomplishing things, and saying things that no one else has said or done. Therefore, when it comes to this Jesus, you cannot ride the fence when it comes to who he is. You can't just take him as you want him to be. He is either Lord over all things, the I am, or he's a lunatic. What Jesus is declaring is he's saying, I am God and I am good. And how is he good? Well, verses 12 through 15, Jesus uses a contrast to describe the nature of his goodness. He contrasts his goodness with that of this hired hand. He states, verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the, the wolf coming, and what does he do? But he leaves the sheep. So here's a hired hand. He's more concerned about himself than the sheep. When harm comes, he's bolting. He's running at the expense of the sheep. There, there's nothing for this hired hand of true skin in the game. For him to leave is just for him to leave. For him to leave is just for him to kind of set his responsibilities to the side. He's not really out on anything because he doesn't own the sheep. He's just a hired hand. He's more about his self-interest than actually caring for the good of the sheep. It's kind of like, have you watched Undercover Boss? 
where you, you, you have these, some of these workers are incredible, right? They're sacrificing, they're, they're all in, and so when the boss shows up, man, he's just stunned by how wonderful these individuals are working, right? And so by the end of the, the episode, there's, there's the boss now, he's unveiled, and he comes into the light, and they have the little sit down, and, and he's doing all these wonderful things now for them because they're such a good hired hand. He's paying off their college debt, you know? He's buying them new cars and maybe paying off their mortgage. But then there's that bozo, right, that he has run into while he's been undercover. This guy who just does not care whatsoever about the work at hand, really isn't invested in any way. He's just kind of punching the clock, doing his response, doesn't really care to, to even invest in what is going on, and he steps in, and he recognizes who it is that he's been working with, right? And it's the boss now who sits there and rebukes him and sends him packing. While he's paying for the college debt of others, he's sending this guy packing. He's a hired hand who doesn't ultimately care whatsoever about the responsibilities at hand. Jesus is saying, this hired hand is a contrast to who I ultimately am. I am invested in my people. I'm invested in this redemption. I am God and I am good, verse 11. I am not, I am not just about my self-interest. I'm actually about uh, the sheep. I, by contrast, verse 11, lay down my life for the sheep. Where the hired hand is all about his self-interest, Jesus, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, is about self-sacrifice. He will give of himself for the good of the sheep. He's radically committed to the well-being, and not just if it costs his life, but when it costs his life. He's determined to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus, in this sense, is anticipating his death, not just because of the rumors and the tensions and the offense that's happening around him, but because he knows his Bible. You realize that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, that as he came, he embraced all the limitations of man, even with the responsibility of knowing his Bible. He didn't just show up having this divine download, knowing exactly what was happening. He was even growing in an understanding of what his father had given him. He knew his Bible, and therefore from Genesis 3.15 and forward, sin enters the world, brokenness is pervasive, and God promises, Genesis 3.15, there is one who will come. His heel will be bruised. The idea there is literally he will be dealt a death blow. But in the death blow, he will bring a bruise to the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. There will be this death exchange, if you will, between the promised one who would come. Jesus knows as the fulfillment to that promise, he must die. He must die in order to Save, protect, and preserve the sheep. He must come to give his life in order to render the enemy powerless. He would be the one who would actually shatter the teeth of the wolf. But he would do it at the expense of his own life. 
Now, moreover, in contrast to the hired hand, the text shows us that it's not just some grand, courageous example of self-sacrifice. Jesus just didn't know his Bible in terms of, well, I'm going to be this grand, this grand sacrifice that becomes this grand example for generations to come. The word that he uses has, is loaded with meaning. He uses the word for. He will lay down his life for the sheep. It's a small word, Greek word, but in most of its uses, it carries the idea of being, doing something in the place of another or on behalf of one another. In other words, the nuance here is it's not just a courageous example that Jesus is coming to die to demonstrate something good. No, he's actually coming expressly as a sacrificial substitute. Jesus is God and he is good in the sense that he will become, here's the big word, a propitiation for us. He will stand in our place to take upon himself what we deserve so that we might freely know his righteousness. And this is where the offense of the goodness of the good shepherd comes. You don't get his goodness. You don't get his grace until you come to the recognition that you're a sinner in need of a substitute. One who would stand in your place, receive the judgment that you deserve. And in receiving the judgment that he would then grant you a righteousness, that he would grant you a standing with God, that he would grant you a place and his fold within his flock. Folks, when it comes to this substitutionary atonement stuff, this is, as some of the philosophers of our day would say, it's archetypal for us, which means it is so deeply ingrained into us such that when we see even movies or shows where there is a substitutionary atonement, someone steps in on behalf of the something in the depths of our soul it, it awakens, right? Our emotions go after those things because we know deep down that we are designed, we need that substitute. One of the greatest uh, movies recently that had this in it, of course, was uh, Avengers Endgame, right? So if, if you haven't seen it, I'm gonna ruin it for you. you may wanna do one of these. Uh, what ends up happening, there's Thanos, right? Thanos is the big, bad, you know, persona of evil. And he's a, he carries the power of death in, in the snap of his hand due to the stones that are in, in the glove, right? And so he has the power, he carries the authority in his right hand to bring death to all, but in this epic battle that goes back and forth, it all comes down to there's Iron Man, right? And Iron Man is in this final struggle because things seem so desperately lost. It seems as though evil has won the day, but in one last attempt, there, there's Iron Man grabbing a hold of the glove and and in a moment, there's Thanos who pushes away Iron Man, and there's this stunning moment where Thanos then stands up, and he looks at Iron Man, and he says, notice, it's an I am statement. He says, I am inevitable. And he snaps his finger, but nothing happens. So suddenly, what, what has just gone on? And then the, the, the movie pans over to Iron Man, and there, there he's sitting there, 
and he's raising up his hands that he had just stripped the stones, right? He had taken the authority, he had taken the power from the right hand of this, this evil individual, and now there's Iron Man who holds the power of life and death. And there he says, no, I am Iron Man, right? And he snaps his finger and suddenly evil is banished. But in that moment, Iron Man knows that in snapping his finger, he must give his life to save the life of everyone else. Man, it's a powerful moment, right? These I am statements, these divine statements being exchanged, this right hand of power, who holds life and death in their hand? And there's the Savior, Iron Man, a substitutionary atonement, the one who gives his life in order to save others. There's something deep in our souls that says, yes, we need that. That's just not Hollywood being good. That's us coming to be confronted with the nature of our own hearts and souls that we come to recognize deep within our souls. Yes, I need a substitute, one who will stand in my place, one who actually conquer sin and death, for I cannot do it. And that's what Jesus did. He stepped in. He is the great sacrificial substitute for our souls. But once again, like, this is the offense of his goodness, that yes, he would come and he would stand in our place, but you have to reckon, you have to come to the, the point of actually embracing the fact that you need that substitute, that you need that Savior, that in yourself you are unable, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to do anything about it, that death will have its way over you, judgment will come upon you, should you not rest in the good shepherd, the one who gave himself for you. He is good, and he is God. He is the good shepherd, the self-sacrificing substitute. Not only is he good by way of that, but notice what he says in verse 14 through 18. As God, he lays down his life to unify us. In verse 14, Jesus declares it all over again. If you didn't catch it the first time, Jesus is saying it again, right? I am the good shepherd. Okay, Jesus, talk to us about that. He states, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The goodness of the good shepherd is not just in having a saving, substitutionary atonement made possible for us but also the fact that in his goodness, he intends that sacrifice to create something that is deeply relational. We are not just saved from sin, but we are saved into the glorious depths of relational intimacy with God. Even such that Jesus could compare, stunning, stunning words that he used. He compares his relationship to the sheep with his relationship to the Father. And do you, do you think of your relationship to God that way? <laughs> Jesus, just like you're related to the Father in perfect oneness, that's how you've connected us. In perfect oneness. 
We know that Jesus' relationship to the Father is of such intimacy, such oneness, such togetherness, that he would say in John chapter 10, verse 30, just a little further down, I and my Father are one. He'll say a few chapters even later, John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like there is such a unity, a togetherness in this relationship that Jesus says, yeah, if you've seen me, it's a perfect representation of who the Father is. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a profound and seamless relational oneness. And it's analogous of our own relationship together with Christ. As it relates to the relationship of the Trinity, the Father and Son, and then the Holy Spirit. One scholar says it this way. He says, you may not know that there was a Trinity apart from the roles and relationships throughout redemptive history. That Jesus was sent, that the Father had sent him, and that the Spirit rested upon Jesus to empower his work and ministry. While they are each unique in their redemptive roles, he says there's a seeming a seamless unity to their work. They are bound together in this glorious, redemptive unity, and it's this harmony of relationship, this oneness with relationship that Jesus says is akin to the kind of relationship that he has with you. He is bound to you in oneness. He lived, he died in order to secure for you the depths of relational intimacy and togetherness. It's a relational harmony and oneness such that if you see the sheep, you're to see the shepherd. As Jesus is one with the Father, so Jesus has died to make us one with himself. Now, follow with me. We're going to get a little complicated here. It's not just analogous, right? It's not just something to be compared to, to, to the other. But we could also say that it's our relational oneness with Christ that has been birthed out of and built into Jesus' relational oneness with the Father. Does that go over your head? Right? The idea is this. Their relationship, Father and Son, to one another is responsible for our relationship to them. Right? When we come to faith in Christ, we are literally joined in relationship to one another and with the triune fellowship. This is seen in verse 16. Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. In other words, he's saying that it's out of the relational intimacy of me and my Father that now I have given my life. It's the love relationship here that out of the working of that love that I have come to bring you into that relationship. That our oneness with Jesus has been birthed out of and now built into this triune fellowship. It's incredible language that Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying, I am just that good. You were made for God. You were made for fellowship with God. You were made for oneness with God, for oneness with one another. You were made for all of that. And Jesus says, that's what I came. I gave my life as the good shepherd in order to secure that for you. Out of the wonder of this triune love and relationship came the sacrifice of Jesus that would rescue us and bring us into the fellowship of the Trinity itself. But here's where the potential offense of this goodness lies. You say, well, that's all good. (laughs) 
Where's the offense? Well, verse 16, he states, I have sheep that are not of this fold. What's he saying? His sheep aren't always going to be Jewish. Right? God's vision for redemptive history has always had that in view. Right? Jesus will have said, even in John chapter 4, uh, verse 22, in ter- turning and talking to the Samaritan woman, what Jesus will talk about is the fact that, yes, salvation is of the Jews, but it's not just of the Jews, it is for the ethne, for the nations, for all. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is, I got other sheep that are not of the Jewish people. There are others who will become a part of my flock, a part of my family. From the very beginning, if you go back to the beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, what is God promising to Abraham? He's promising, you are going to be the father of many nations. There will be a blessing that will come through you that will be for the nations, for the ethne. Jesus shows up. He does his work in ministry. We get a foretaste of what ultimately that's going to produce in Revelation chapter 5. And it's a people, an unnumberable amount of people gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, giving him praise for what he's done in redemption. This is a part from beginning to end. It all has this view of this multi-ethnic, multicultural people gathered into the flock of God but it's one, it's one flock under the care and protection of one shepherd. What does that mean for us? Well, as a church, as the people of God, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? Those who have come to know the great, the good offense of like, I'm a sinner in need of a savior, right? We also eventually are brought to the fact that community is tough, It's hard. It's difficult. Part of the reason why it's hard and difficult is become from different backgrounds, different experiences, different perspectives, different cultures, right? And it's difficult to come together and say, yep, we're one, and to actually live like it. But this is what Christ has done for the Jews in this this crowd right here. Jesus is offending them, saying, "Uh, yeah, by the way, you're, you're not exactly who you think you are, right? Through Jews came salvation, but it's a salvation for all. It's not reserved for you. It's actually been opened up for all who would receive the good shepherd. Therefore, when it comes down to it, this church community, this one flock, not everyone is gonna look like you, Not everyone is going to carry the same preferences as you. Not all will worship like you, talk like you, have the same cultural or perhaps political perspectives as you. But together, (laughs) in Christ, this is what Jesus has, has created. We are one. We are one. We're one in Christ. It's a oneness in Christ that actually maintains something of its clear and obvious diversity. Like we said last week, the oneness of the church, the oneness of the flock isn't whitewashed. It doesn't take on a singular form. No, it actually makes way for diversity. It makes way for multiculturalism. 
And in even that grand diversity, there is to be clarity of oneness, unity in Christ. Easier said than done when it comes down to it. Plenty of fractures within the church, as we even think about it historically, the American church, plenty of difficulty, plenty of hardship, and even today we live in the wake of those fractures. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to look to the Good Shepherd. He has made us one flock under one shepherd. He has unified us in our diversity together in him. So here's the question that that I just want to pose to you as we close things down. If the good shepherd has saved us and in our diversity has unified us, how do we honor the good shepherd? Specifically when it comes to our oneness in him. I think pastorally this is a marathon, not a sprint when it comes to these issues of racial reconciliation. It's a marathon. It's going to be a journey that we walk out. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, pastorally, I don't, I don't want to see this as just kind of a flash in the pen. Well, it's, it's, it's heavy in the news. It's heavy in the media. So let's, let's talk about it. This can't be a flash in the pan when it comes to honoring what the Good Shepherd has done for us, right? So how do we, how do we go about this? Well, I just want to present three kind of like phases the way I see it. And, and, and these phases then are played out like this. First, awareness. We talked about that last week. When it comes to the majority normativity, when it becomes to uh, predominantly white culture and and ways in which we don't have to think about our whiteness and the ways in which minorities will have to think about their brownness or blackness, right? And so we need to kind of be aware of our whiteness. We need to be aware of the majority normativity, like we talked about last week. It's like the left-handed person living in the right-handed world. Uh, When it comes down to it, we just need to be aware. That doesn't impose guilt upon anyone. What it does is it just seeks to be aware. Also then last week we talked about part of the awareness is is understanding our American history. Uh, Recommended a few resources uh, last week. We need to get to know our history as a nation and particularly our our history as an American church. And so that's, that's a good place to begin. We begin to understand and grow in our knowledge of what all the tensions are that we are facing in the here and now. And as I mentioned last week also, we need to stay Christ-centered. Jesus is our, our unity. He is our oneness. And therefore, we, we keep our eyes upon him. Uh, we seek to be aware because of him, with the aim to be one in him. And so we need to be aware. But then secondly, and this is where perhaps you know, we'll give some time as a church and probably step back into this conversation in the near future, where we, we move into intentionality. And this is where, this is where the rub's going to come for many. Intentionality may mean this as a church. 
It may mean, just to be straight, repentance. Repentance is simply taking the responsibility for the past sins of the one flock. Were we the ones who were ultimately, during past time, responsible for the wrongdoing? No, not necessarily, but we're one flock. We're one flock. It's, it's our role here and now to kind of deal with the baggage of the past. We are not a divided church by generation. We are one flock. For the, some of the very ones who made such terrible decisions in the past, and maybe were actually sinfully, overtly racist in their actions, we may stand with them in glory. Right? We will be one flock. And therefore, in the here and now, it may mean, it may mean that we even, corporately speaking, repent of what the church has failed to do. In our American society, we hate this idea. Right? Why? Because we're individuals. I'm responsible for my own choices, and everyone else is responsible for their choices. No, to get we're one flock. It's good for us take on the responsibility of actions that go beyond our real little microcosm here now. It may mean that as a church, repentance, corporate repentance, would be the way forward. It will also mean, when it comes to intentionality, that we need to be always redirecting the drift. What I mean by that is, again, we always drift to what is the norm for us. We will always drift, I'm going to just say it bluntly, we'll always kind of drift into our white ways. This is my culture, this is the way it's done, so here are the forms, here's what it looks like, here's the voice, here's what it sounds like. We'll always drift. We're drifting to the things that are coming to us. Why? Because that's comfortable. To be intentional means that we need to turn around and actually create conversation with those who may not look like us or sound like us. We may have to intentionally step toward them and away from what might feel comfortable for us. It's simply an act of love when it comes down to it. And by the way, we have plenty diversity in our church body such that those should be obvious and clear opportunities for us. Hey, tell me where you're from. Give me your history. What's what's going on? What's it been like? to even live as a minority within this culture. To move towards them, creating relationships with folks who aren't like you. We need to redirect the drift, keep that consistent. So repentance may be one thing. Redirecting the drift might be another thing. Making room for multiculturalism. You guys know the term tokenism, right? When it comes down to it, we, we need to be careful, especially in this conversation, that our goal is not just to be multiracial as a church, just to have color, but to actually be multicultural, which means we have to be good with changing our forms and the way we do things. It's not just that we would have different colors represented, different ethnicities represented, but that we would actually be willing to hear the voices, that we would be willing to hear the sounds, that the the forms of how we do life together would actually change in order to open up to a greater expression of multi-cultures. 
We need to make room for multiculturalism, being aware of just tokenism, just saying, okay, I did my, my little job. I, I studied a little history. You know, I made, I, I made a friend who doesn't look like me. Great, wonderful. I, that's not the point. Are you willing to be changed by it? Are you willing to be affected by the voices uh, that perhaps aren't the same as yours? I think part of this multiculturalism, and this may sound super like uh, insignificant, but practically this might even look like, uh, this is the one I just came to mind as I was studying. This might look like ensuring that the books that we have in our nursery represent multiculturalism. It might mean that we've talked about it the last even couple weeks, like, let's sing Spanish songs. Let's just do it. Let's create that space. Let's honor the multiculturalism that Jesus ultimately died to gain, right? That's part of it. It's simple things like this, that we're creating room. And it doesn't mean we have to get weird about it, right? But hey, where we can, let, let's just be intentional to create space for multiculturalism. And then finally, and again, this is, this is the phases that I see us going in as a church, that there would be an awareness, that there would be an intentionality, but then there would just be a commitment to gospel community. Right? As, as Jesus ultimately is, is the motive for kind of this, this idea of diversity and reconciliation and growing and learning together, uh, may it be then as we move forward that this just becomes a part of our gospel community with one another. Right? This is part of our oneness with one another, that we're accepting and looking for ways in which to bring about something of, of, of the treasure hunt, right? You're, you're looking to find ways in which God's grace is evidenced through diversity and difference. This is part of just moving forward then as a gospel community, ultimately so that the good shepherd would gain what he died to receive, one flock. So with that, I just want to pray. And I want to pray that God would grant us wisdom and even the ability to step beyond our own little comfort zones to perhaps step out in developing new relationships, that, that he would give us something of boldness to lean in and ask questions, to learn, to understand, to gain that awareness so that together, again, something of the good shepherd uh, might be realized, something of his grace might be enjoyed together. Father, we, we come to you thanking you that you gave us Jesus, the perfect substitute for our souls. Father, we, we don't want to move on so quickly from knowing, from knowing just how deeply we needed that substitute. We were sinners against your throne. We, we denied you. We pushed you away. We didn't want anything to do with you. We were ultimately, like that crowd, offended by you. <coughs> Spirit of God, thanking you for opening up our eyes to see the glories of Jesus, that he is good even offensively good. <laughs> and Jesus, now we ask you as the good shepherd to lead us into the oneness 
that you've called us to share in as it relates to your flock. One flock, one shepherd. Jesus, I pray that if there needs to be further offense brought to our hearts in order to see the needs at hand, in order to see the fractured oneness of your flock, you need to offend us to bring us to our knees so that we might know your goodness afresh. Let it, let it be. But teach us, especially in a world that is, man, it, it is pulling for our attention to all the extremes. Give us a way forward such that ultimately this one flock of yours would stand in such beautiful contrast to a world so desperately needs you. I pray that the unity, the peace, the harmony, the multiculturalism that you birth here in this local body, that it would just stand as just a beautiful testament to your grace. That perhaps the onlooking world would say, wow, if that that's what the good shepherd is all about. If that's what he can accomplish, I got to get in with him. I need that savior. I need that good shepherd. So Lord, we invite you to teach us, grow us. There's much to be done, much to learn. Keep us focused on you, we pray. It's in Jesus' name.
By way of benediction, uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, grace and peace to you.